welcome to New Persuasive Words, a podcast of hope-seeking understanding. You're invited to listen in to an ongoing conversation about theology, culture, and politics between your co-hosts, Scott Jones and Bill Bohr. Regardless of topic, Bill and Scott offer intelligent insights and critiques, sometimes funny, occasionally contentious, but always remaining friends. Now, here are Scott and Bill. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 252, and I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We're back in the saddle again. Yeah, it's good to be back. So we had, here. we've really had two really wonderful back-to-back episodes with uh, guests. Yes, the agony and the ecstasy. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I probably uh, on a regular basis give uh, you know Dr. Fitch a hard time on social media. On social media, periodically, I just say something. <clears throat> You do, yes. But I, you know, I enjoyed my conver- I enjoyed our conversation with him, and um, you know, um, so and, and of course, it's always good to talk to Doctor Milner, Matt. Yeah, it so, was very generative, stimulative, interesting. Yeah, so we are on we all pre- fronts. We appreciate that. So it's good. We uh, it's good for us to have those conversations, and you know, it's fun that we've gone. You know, two hundred fifty two episodes. That's a lot. That's a lot of episodes. It's a lot of episodes, a lot of podcasts. I still, I think we should at least get to 300. I know. I mean, I feel like we still have things to say. And uh, yeah, I don't know. There's something about getting to 300. And There you go. There's a goal. I've got a goal. I set a goal for today. I like that. It's only four, 48 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> no one told me, no one told you to be math on the exam Exactly. Today. I'm doing yeah. that right in my head on the floor. Yeah, we <laughs> well, there's lots of things in the queue that we want to talk about, actually. There were things through our conversations with both of them that made us think of different subjects. But you have one that, that you sent me. Yeah, I saw this. I posted this on social media. I, I think uh, David Norling first posted it on Facebook, and that's where I kind of caught notice of it. And it's a piece called The Righteous and the Woke, Why Evangelicals and so- Social Justice Warriors Trigger Me in the Same Way. And the person in question that is triggered is Valerie Tarico, and this is posted on xchristian.net, and the subtitle is Encouraging encouraging Deconverting and Former Christians. Uh, Okay, okay, okay. So they're encouraging deconverting Christians and former Christians. Christians that are in the process of deconverting or have deconverted. (laughs) And that's so, so I don't know like what they have several podcasts too. I didn't realize that, so it's very interesting. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, so this is—I I found this interesting though because she comes out of a fundamentalist background. She explains she was in—you know—she graduated from Wheaton College. She, she hits, was in she Bible hits, camps. She hits. She hits some benchmarks there. Yeah, she hits. She has pretty good evangelical bona fides, so to speak. Yeah, and she says, you know, and now she identifies as someone on the uh, on the progressive spectrum of the culture, and not as a Christian anymore. But she says that you know what she sees in her in in her running in progressive circles is this kind of commonality between what she calls the righteous and the woke, like you know that this sort of very conservative evangelical kind of. Uh, crusading, uh, you know, type of Christians and the woke progressives. She sees in both of these uh, groups some strange uh, or some 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 affinities that would not, uh, on a prima facie level, occur to many people. But then when you read it, you're like, oh yeah. I mean, well, yeah. True, true believers tend to have a certain kind of 
whatever you are a true believer of, you tend to have a kind of the same crusading principles, whether you're a, uh, you know, a right-wing crusader uh, who <laughs> wears obscene t-shirts at Bill Clinton rallies, <laughs> like, like a man we all... Like Roger Stone. Has, yeah, Roger Stone. That Roger Stone documentary is fantastic <laughs> on Netflix. It is fantastic. Yeah, or, or you know, if you, you know... If, I, would, I would have drinks with Roger Stone. Absolutely. Yeah. If I could, absolutely I would do it. I would be the designated driver and not go in. I, I would totally <laughs> well, yeah. second. Yeah, that would sure not even would. take me a, a second to RSVP. I mean, I would. I would immediately. Well, that's, that would be good. You could tell me about it. Uh, it's but a sharp dresser too. Uh, or, but you know, you read particularly. I think you read accounts of you know Marxist and communists of the twenties when uh, what Stalin was going to become, or uh, even in the thirties, what Stalin was going to become wasn't totally manifest. So, if, you know, regardless of there are there are kind of elements of people who I want to say uncritically hold to a particular ideology. And she, she kind of hits a number of them that certainly have been listed by other people before. Yeah, her first is the, the right, she's the kind of righteous and infidel lens that both groups share and see the world in and through. There are two kinds of people, right? There's the saved and the damned, or there's the woke and the bigots, and anyone who isn't with you is against you. Right. right. So everybody is sort of, uh, you know, all the moral weight is sort of freighted on whether you're an insider or an outsider. And and she notes that there is exceptions sometimes made for potential converts. Like there'll be a little patient with you <laughs> if you're if you're if you seem like you're being midwifed. But other, you know, that's interesting that, that you have the bifurcated kind of anthropology and and you kind of you're either one or the other and 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 you quickly divide the world up that way. The other thing she says is the use of of insider jargon, you know, for evangelicals, it might be praise the Lord, backsliding, stumbling block, uh, you know, whatever. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. For the woke crowd, it's intersectionality, cultural appropriation, trigger warning, microaggression, privilege, fragility, decolonialization. But the jargon isn't just merely, she says, a, a, a tool for efficient communication or something. It's a sign of belonging and moral virtue. So you, if you use right. the language and use it correctly, then you show that you belong. If you don't know the language, you show that you're an infidel or that you're not woke, that you're regressive. It's kind of more like we t we've talked before about the virtual signaling that goes on both in the right and the left, and this is just an example of that. Yeah. And then she says this sort of accidents of birth, like even though that you in evangelical culture you know you have the privileged kind of bloodlines in the bible the chosen people kind of thing and there's this kind of elect notion uh, and in every and also in every parachurch or every group there's a certain kind of in there's always you know it's a very natural in crowds depending on where you went to school what parachurches yeah. you were part of yeah and oh and she's, although theoretically you know anybody's welcome in either group accents right. of birth drive a lot and and, and she says and you see this in the in the woke cry with intersectionality so like if you're and you know intersectionality is interesting because you on one level you can see it as a helpful descriptive tool like okay if if you have if you're black and a woman you have you, you're there's some systems in place that that discriminate against you in two different ways right right, right. So, so these are, but now like intersectionality becomes like this moral calculus, right? So if you're, she quotes, if you're a queer female East Indian Harvard grad with a PhD and, uh, and ED position is considered more oppressed than the unemployed son of a, of a, 
third son of a white Appalachian coal miner, right? Because he's still a white male. So she has two degrees, and she so like basically, right? You, and then you know, oftentimes if you're it, 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 the lower you are in the intersectional oppressed oppressed quotient, the less you get to speak, and the more you have to listen, and that sort of thing. Was it? You know, it was kind of interesting. Remember the uh, gosh, it was, it was a woman who was was she president of the NAACP? Of some group, some state, and then it turned out she was white. Remember that controversy a number of years ago? Oh yeah, yeah. The, yeah the, oh, I can't remember her name now, but yeah. But so there's a sense where, and you know, you could say a little bit even with what's going on with Elizabeth Warren, her, you know, kind of her appropriating, or you know, she claims it was an innocent mistake that she. That's it was. She, you know what it is? I'm going to show my wokeness. It is identity politics, stolen valor. It's intersectionality, it's stolen, stolen valor. It's like people that wear the uniforms that didn't serve. This is intersectional, stolen valor. Yeah. I would pass the woke test with, with diction like that. Very nice. So, yeah, she, she also mentions orthodoxies. Like, you know, for if you're a conservative evangelical, you know, biblical inerrancy, Jesus you know, the substitutionary atonement, things like that. And she says, you know, woke, and that stuff can't be questioned. When you question it, you're kind of out of the tribe, right? You're quickly often censored in certain right. conservative circles. And she says the the woke kind of progressive have these, have these things too, that, you know, only males can be sexist, only white people can be racist, gender is culturally constructed, independent of sex, immigration is an economic boom for everyone, elevating the most oppressed person will solve the problems all around. And then she says this. She says something great. Did you? Did my challenging that list make you think you might be reading an article by a conservative? If so, that's exactly what I'm trying to illustrate. <laughs> right. uh, and denial is proof, right? Like if right. you deny uh, the the truth of the gospel for an evangelical, it's just it's just a sign that you're reprobate. The spirit's not with you. You're hard of heart. You don't have faith. Same thing. If if you offer a critique, if, if, let's say you say that you voted for Barack Obama, and or that you you say that you voted for Barack Obama, and your kids are biracial, so your problem with um, with BLM, what is BLM? I don't know what BLM uh, isn't racism or something, or, or you don't you're not racist because you have bi, you know you have a biracial kid, and you know, you're a white male. You've ever, well, see, that's exactly what a racist would say. You deny that you're a racist, or you know, like she gets into how if you the moment you challenge the the sort of prevailing ideology of the woke culture, well, it's well, that's exactly what your denial proves you're not woke. right. Right. There's the well, I guess part of what Beach, uh, the way she's categorized things, each group lacks a kind of self uh, self critique, um, and uh, you know, there's a certain not a certain each group is marked by uh, by. A strong intolerance of anything that would challenge its presuppositions. Yeah, and she she talks about like things, other things like black and white thinking, shaming and shunning, right? How how evangelical culture often shames and shuns people. Also, it, she says, you know, you have the Maoist struggle sessions and Soviet self criticism are are are, are, exa are examples of extreme shaming. Uh, so it should be no surprise that some of the woke show little hesitation when call out opportunities present themselves. Nor that they remain unrelentingly righteous, even when those callouts leave a life or a family in ruins. This is another interesting thing: selective silent science denial, right? Where like right, right, we're yeah. both often uh, both often deny science, or science conflicts with their own ideological concerns. Uh, hypocrisy, of course. Um, gloating over the fate of the wicked, right? Like yeah. this used to be an orthodox 
Christian tenet right well into post Reformation period that you that the, the that the the righteous in heaven the saved in heaven would look down and see the suffering of those in hell that's kind of faded out in a lot of the tradition but at the same time right there's this gloating over right. when the unwoke kind of get their just deserts so it's very interesting I thought this was very uh, well written it was it was uh, argued pretty well interesting kind of take on how these how similar these two kinds of groups who would look at each other and see each other as complete nemeses right but she sees in them you know a lot in common yeah well i think at in each group in their best intentions are, are seeking to transform individuals in society and i i think um, that there's a kind of a heart of a revolutionary in that you know you're whether you're a revolutionary for god or for your particular issue or a whole cluster of issues. I mean, the truth of the matter, you and I both think that uh, what's happening with the climate is very serious. Uh, concerns about, you know, you don't have children yet, but uh, you start projecting now what, you know, your children are going to ex- experience, what my grandchildren are going to live with, what my... I, I know it is. I've seen Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a sense where... Um, you know, in the 70s... If we want our future to be more like Star Trek and less like Blade Runner, mm-hmm. the answer is nuclear power. Right. <laughs> That's right. You just... You just Dude, I am so... I know. You, I, just, I, you were just converted. So, yes. It's, it's, I mean, I, I kind of lean that way, so maybe yeah. it's just reinforcing yeah. my biases, but man, I have all the facts now that like, I, I'm just... This book is so good. It just blew me away how well argued it was. So so now you're going to be a you're intolerant of those who don't. No, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tolerate you. I'm just not. Vote, I'm not voting for anybody that's not pro nuclear. All right. Well, that might be. That's a, that one's out of. You have to get uh, Cory Booker is pro nuclear. What you need to get is you need to get the Koch brothers to move over to nuclear. Then then there'll be some money behind it. Uh, and they probably already are thinking that way if it could happen. No, but I, I do think there's a sense we you know. Um, you know, reformers and revolutionaries. There's there needs to be a kind of a dogmatic nature to it, or they don't they don't take the risk or don't do the things that need to be done to get things done. I mean, one of the things that you know, I, I appreciate her observations. Uh, one of the dangers to me of called the moderation. Now, again, if you if you are someone with strong convictions, but also can have the spirit of tolerance or mercy, then I think that takes the edge off of. Of that, you know, it's interesting. My evangelical credentials are as good as hers, you know. And I went through a period where I really questioned a lot of of the things that I've been taught. And uh, you know, I'm in college. Are they as good as hers? I mean, okay, this, let's look at your camps. Wheaton College is strong. Yeah, but Billy Graham. I mean, her pre. I mean, you have good. I'm just saying. I mean, I grew up in revivalism. I've spent time with both the Bible fundamentalist. I had old books of the Bible memorized. Uh, I went to a cut, you know, uh, again, I I don't know. I think she might have like, she might be like more in the inner ring. Inner ring. Well, according, whatever. It's not, I'm not, it's not a, it's not a contest I need to win. (laughs) But my whole point is that. um, If anyone has reason to boast. She, if she, if she wants, if she wants to have, if she wants to be an evangelical pedigree and I'm more of a mud, I'm happy to let her have that. My whole point is that I went through a lot of the same questioning she did, but there was I had I had with for every kind of kooky or closed-minded person that I came across, there were many people who, in spite of their flaws, were folks that demonstrated the best of what we claim Christianity to be. And, you know, 
maybe my grandmother, my sainted grandmother was the mediating figure through all that. But, you know, part of helped being a, you know, I, I was a psychology major at a secular university. So very early on, I figured out all the things that are wrong with Christianity, uh, you know, you can say the same things about, you know, the psychological kind of worldview because it had the same kind of problems. And so uh, the behavioral sciences had the same, if not more problems. So I think I also had counter witnesses who really looked like what Christians were supposed to look like. So, and I had people also who came to my life who said it was okay for me to ask questions. So, I, you know, it's an interesting thing that I, I'm sympathetic to the radicals, the people who are willing to, you know, do goofy things to share the faith. Uh, and I'm also hopeful that some of these people that are revolutionary are going to maybe step in the gap about uh, still the extreme, the fact that we as a country are quite okay with children getting shot at school, with African-Americans being treated as second-class citizens, with uh, people of Hispanic origin being spoken of as if they were all criminals. Go on, you can go on and on. So I think there's a sense where sometimes it's radicals and revolutionaries who get things, at least get the discussion going. Now, the question is, you know, uh, the revolutionaries also, once they get in power, i.e. the French Revolution, Martin Luther, whoever you want to paint a figure to, they, there's a tendency for them to be as intolerant as the things they revolt against. So that's that's. I think she speaks to. <laughs> there's something maybe inherent to true believers that um, can you be a, a true zeal believer was that's zealous for the cause and tolerant at the same time. I, I would hope that you can be, but maybe you can't. Well, I mean, it's interesting because somebody here, Sue Joyner from North Carolina, by the way, not South Carolina, it says. Aren't we all self-righteous? And I think, yes, we, most people, uh, yes, I think everybody is self-righteous at, at some points or another. But that would be that would be the nature of original sin. And yeah. Self-source. And also, I think that the more ideology becomes identity, right? right. Ideas become identity. The This happens, you know, these sort of tendencies she's pointing out in this piece happen more and more, right? And, and, right. and that is absolutely, you know, recently uh, there's been several sort of demographic pieces of research that show people are more biased about people from another political tribe than they are racial ethnic stuff. So somebody's politics is more prejudicial and more of a reactive trigger for people. See, I said trigger. I'm woke. Because yes, you were sounding very woke a minute ago. You know, so what, tr- you know what triggers me? Me? Triggers. Triggers. Triggers trigger me. So I think, I do think, yeah, the self-righteous thing is important. And I think the more you, uh, the, the more that your identity is driven by ideology, then the more, and also often your advocacy, this is, Jonathan Haidt has pointed this out in his research, that oftentimes when you're, when you're making the case for what you think is true, if, if you're in a, some socio-political religious mm-hmm. tribe, you're actually really not trying to persuade, right? This is what she said. About right. The language is not for the to, outsider. To, 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 is not for more efficient communication or to persuade. It's virtue signaling. It's to, it's morality. We have the language. If right. you don't understand, if you don't know, it shows that you're on the other side of the the great divide. So I think, yeah, inherently, I think it probably the more tribal you get, the, the more. The, the kind of tendency that she points out probably occur. Yeah, you know, I think it's true that most, that as churches, we pretty much tithe to ourselves. And I think 
you know, whatever your particular ideology is, you tend to preach to yourself as well or those like you. I mean, it's interesting. However you want to dress it up, it's hard not to be tribal. It's like so built into our evolutionary makeup. Right, it's how humans survive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and again, I'm not saying uh, – I'm not saying it's wrong to belong to a tribe, just as long as you're not trying to exterminate the other tribes while you do it. I mean, I think isn't that? I mean, I think there can be a you know again, uh, there can be a generous orthodoxy. I think there can be you can hold on to your convictions without squeezing the life out of them and turning them into a club to beat someone else up. I mean. I can still remember Dodgers Allen saying that uh, tolerance is a Christian virtue, permissiveness is not. So, you know, there's this difference between being tolerant of other people and other positions and also permissive saying anything goes. I think that's a, that's a, that's a nuanced position, but I think it's, uh, it's one way to be able to engage with people to listen, to accept other people's right, if not right, to have their position, but the fact that that's where they're all, they are. You add a good dose of Christian humility, recognizing our own ever-present tendency to self-justify. And I think you can hold on to convictions and engage without having to go uh, the route that she colors. And I also think you don't have to become someone who doesn't believe in anything or someone who, you know, well, we go to church or we, you know, yes, I vote progressive, but, you know, I'm going to tend my garden or read my paper or whatever. I think you can still be engaged without having to be and have passion without being uh, someone who is intolerant. Yeah, no, I, I think it, it depends on what the action and passion do for you, or, you know, what they're, you know, if they are, it, this is that Luther quote we said the other day, which, like Luther said, our good works are not, for God doesn't need our good works, our, our works aren't for God, they're for our neighbor. Right. And so when they're, when things are done really in, in service and love, I mean, those those are can be, I think, really good. The tra- the problem with I think tr- any transformation project is it presume it presumes the capacity to control, right? Because you you have right. you have some ability to control it if you can transform it, and you also know the tell us which way it should go. So it's a, so any sort of transformative spirit, the danger is the amount of presumption, right, that goes along with right. it is sort of is intention with I think love which is the opposite of control so i mean those things are just i think often intention when we act yeah i do think they're intention i mean i you know i don't have a lot of um you know i I don't have a lot of tolerance for people who are i don't have a lot of tolerance for the intolerant or the dutch (laughs) or the dutch Dutch. but i'm also uh you know i'm not that interested in passionless you know positions i you know i i kind of i i like people who um who care enough about what they think should be done to do something about it. I think that's, that is a, that is a very fine line to walk. And, you know, the the reality of it is you're going to, you know, if you're a person of action, you're going to have to constantly reevaluate what you're doing, say your prayers of confession, probably apologize on a regular basis to the people, you know, but I, I'm not a big fan of people who don't get things done, who don't, who don't, you know, who don't make a difference in the world. I, you know, I also understand that um, the damage that, that can be done, particularly with a lack of self-reflection or even more so the lack of accountability. But I don't know. It's, it's an interesting – I think we can moderate ourselves to a nice kind of uh, t- tasteless kind of living and, and thinking. Yeah, it's interesting. Salt without its flavor, right? Bart advocated in, in that people. I mean, Bart was very 
politically active, yes, yeah. but he kind of advocated engaging as anonymous Christians in the public square, just kind right. of as citizens. And that had a, there was a bunch of people in the Netherlands that kind of took him up on that, which is interesting because they came from that tradition where there's the sort of Kuiper's kind of Christian party, very much self-styled right. over against the kind of secular French Revolution kind of enlightenment, you know, perspective. So it's, it's, I mean, that's part of it too. I think that like, that you are freer to act provisionally when you, when you're not sort of clad in team robes, you know? When, yeah, exactly. So, so when you, when there's sort of less explicit identity kind of thing, then you, you know, I think it's easier to admit you're wrong, change your mind. Like as opposed to the more your, your sense of self-worth and identity get or driven by the tribe, the harder it is to be self-reflective. Well, right. For instance, I mean, I've, I tend to vote Democrat and I've been pretty open about my opposition to the direction the president's taking us, but you know, I'm I'm not pro-choice. Uh, so I mean, there's a sense where, I mean, if I if I was going to run for office, I my party probably would support me. If I was going to run for office, I'd run on pro snow removal. Yeah, that's right. That's your people. Position. If you can get moved snow, people love you, and I'd fix every pothole. Right. I would fix every pothole. Like if you did that in Bucks County, it would not matter what they could dig out about your past. If you could do those two things. Yeah. By the way, I was going to tweet. I guess my goals are just not high enough. <laughs> Do you think if like Donald Trump took a picture on the White House lawn in blackface, how would Fox News defend it? Like there would be a defense of it. There would be. By saying he's doing a skin treatment. Skin treatment. Yeah, there <laughs> would be something. Mud, he's putting, there yeah. would be something. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Zoll, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, Stephen Rowe, and Jody Stevenson. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Well, I think it's interesting, too, to see, and I think this was, uh, I had a back and forth a little bit with Ken Tanner uh, the other day, and you involved with it as well. Part of my... Not Bono. Not Bono, right. <laughs> but part of what's what's the problem you see right now with... Do you want me to pull up the quote that was posted? You know, kind of the zero tolerance, the, the zero tolerance that's going on right now, let's say, within democratic circles. Now, again, 
Uh, I mean, <laughs> which is different than lactose intolerance. Yeah. I mean, if you're lactose intolerant, it doesn't mean you're not an open-minded person, right? But there, there seems to be at what point, you know. I mean, obviously, sexual assault is is of a different category than being a graduate student acting like a jerk, which is of a different category than a college student act like a jerk. So, and you know, what if I? Well, we hear one of the potential candidates is a mean boss. Uh, So you go through all these different things. I mean, at one point, I think they're going to have, I I mean, that spirit that she's talking about in the article about the true believers and and some of what's going on right now in in the resurgence of the Democratic Party. It'll be interesting to see how they navigate he who is without or she who is without sin casting the first stone because the stones are flying and some of them are well-deserved, but it'll be interesting to see who survives this. So this is the thing that that Ken posted. Several people posted. I think Jason Michelli posted it. Maybe Joshua. Several. I saw this pop up on several people's feed. This is by Robert K. Fine. It's got this beautiful picture of him cooking. I'm not sure what he's cooking here, but he was an accomplished. <laughs> yeah, cook. his his and he, um, and he his, wrote his uh, lamb recipe is awesome. He wrote food and drink uh, reviews from the New York Times. Mm. So it is not the role of the church to tell people not to sin and to devise lists. The world perfectly knows what sin is. The world knows what morality is. The world knows what's right. Morality is the world's cup of tea. What the world doesn't know is forgiveness, and that's what the world needs to be told. That generated 106 comments. Yeah. (laughs) But I think it's a very— That's a lot of— It is, no. And and I think the spirit of it is right. But it's a very modernist statement. The idea of—yeah, I mean, isn't that, in some levels, the idea that the Enlightenment, religion equals morality— and he's speaking out. He's speaking out of that in his own mainline context. So if you look at, you know, think of the, the where he was shaped, his time period, I think that, I think what he's saying then has a lot of, lot of merit and gravity to it. I'm just saying now we're in a different philosophical moment. And I don't think, I don't think the world knows what it's, it's, what morality is. There are moralities at work. And I think we have to, you know, just even this kind of conversation we're having right now, uh, we're not asked, we're not really off. We're trying to do a description of her of her article, which we found both found interesting. But I do think there is a, a place for the church to talk a little bit about. Okay, is there a third way? Is there a different way from this? Either well, let's not get upset. Let's not care about anything. You know, to the obvious kind of problems there are with you know tribal and identity politics and identity and tribal and identity theology, which we both see the danger in both the left and right going on right now with that. So I do think um, there, there's room for a, for at least a, a way of talking. I'm not saying necessarily we are offering a Christian ethic for which the general population should live or a way of Christian thinking about that. But I do think actually part of our job to be a peacemaker in the current climate is to be able to talk about, well, how can we speak of what is good? How can we speak of, is there any common language for what's good, what's beautiful, what's true? Um, How can we say, yes, you know, this is wrong, or we need to talk about this as being something that's wrong? And also, this is some area that we, you know, it's too unclear to take a definitive stance. So I, I think there's a real place for having Christian voice in the public square around um, moral issues and morality. I don't, uh, I don't claim to have that language or to say it's going to be easy. But I think 
as anyone who's involved in their community, I mean, you as a pastor, you know, I'm involved with, you know, dozens of moral dilemmas that are out in and outside the church every week. So to having people come talk to you about. So I, I do think there is, when you are in a particular position, like you have a podcast, then you have to talk about these things and maybe offer some constructive things, not just deconstruct. Well, I mean, one thing that, okay, so there's a couple of thoughts. First off, like in the current cultural context, the church almost never offers a unique voice, right? It, okay, so the pro-life, pro-choice debate, there's lots of people in the Republican Party who don't believe in God who are pro-life. Right. Lots of people who, in the Democratic Party, which, so you're 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 not adding most of the time a, a distinctive voice there's there's tons of most of the people that are for a sort of more open and generous treatment of immigrants or whatever however you know however the immigrate you want to describe mm-hmm. the immigration wars actually are are people that are not of faith so you partner with them or if you're if you think that it's more loving to have like you know, stronger borders because of, you know, the, the chaos that ensues will, you know, cause problems or something. And then you're, you're, the church seldom, I think, comes out with a, a voice that's, it usually just echoes the voices that are already in the debate. And usually it doesn't echo them as well. Like generally, generally yeah, but, they're not, but, they're uh, not but, the but, best but, spokespeople. But I, see, I, I think we can do better than that. I think we can do. I think some of them. You so, might be able to. I don't know that I well, can do no, I'm just thinking, no, but I'm, don't, you think some of the, don't you think some of the best ethical voices in the history of Western civilization have been Christians? Yeah, so, but they borrow a whole lot from Plato and Aristotle. No, but well, there's no, no, I'm not saying, I'm not calling for original. I'm not calling for original thinking. I'm calling for, from, for a clarity of thinking. And in some levels, we can be in a position to moderate some of this stuff. I mean, I'm not, again, it's a, it's kind of a modest proposal, but it's one that, you know, maybe we need to be engaged in this. And, and again, it's not even, you know, not even the temptation to be unique or even the temptation to be the best, but I do think there's, there's places for it. And it's, it's, it's a necessity. I mean, I, I think certainly we saw it in the civil rights movement, um, you know, and again, I think part of it is not to be overly optimistic what you can do. I mean, that's one of the things I love about the final scene of the mission. And again, it's a, it's a movie, what, it's probably 30 years old now. But the final scene is, and it's this movie was produced by Paulist, the Paulist, in the backdrop. You know, it's about a uh, Jesuit mission on the border of Brazil and uh, was it, yeah, Paraguay, Paraguay. Yeah, because yeah. it's it's yeah. the it's the dividing line between yeah. right the, yeah. the the Portuguese and Spanish, right, right. And at any rate, um, and this village that had converted uh, the Jesuits converted the slavers are coming back to take it over, and the institutional churches said yes to it. So you have two different responses. Jeremy Irons, who's the uh, head of the of the order there, uh, he organizes a procession with the host of a peaceful procession that he says we will we will meet them as Christians and we will march the body of Christ to them as a sign that we are peaceful and we'll appeal to their higher selves as Christian. Robert De Niro, who's a slave trader who's been converted to Christianity, says no. We these are our people, we have to fight and defend them. And so there's a more militant kind of uh, you know the uh, the liberation theology you know that kind of represents that. And I think both of them are faithful responses. And at the risk of spoiling the movie, 
Both of them have the if same. If it's 30 years old, it's not a spoiler. Well, it's well, not a spoiler. But both of them are equally unsuccessful. unsuccessful. Yes. Yeah. And so I think that's where, I mean, you know, one of the things I hate at first. I mean, you can basically look at the history of colonialization and surmise that they will be unsuccessful. Well, you can also look at the history of trying to make real social change. I mean, I think there is a, there's an, I think the temptation to be triumphalistic, that's one you have to kind of die to. But I think, you know, the fact of the matter is both of them were being faithful. And uh, I think that's the power, a power of that, of one of the powers of that statement, the peaceful response. But both of them were engaged and were not going to neglect the needs of their flock. And I think as leaders, we can't, you know, I mean, we can privatize the faith a little bit more. We can give them something that makes them feel good, that makes them feel warm when they leave the building. Uh, I just don't, I think there's more to the faith than that. I think there's less now. <laughs> no, I think it's interesting because Friedrich Schleiermacher thought that, that ethics was a sort of, that dogmatics and ethics were sort of twin parts of one theological enterprise, one section of mm-hmm. theology, as opposed to like historic, as opposed to like biblical theology or practical right. theology. He thought ethics would be in this twin sort of relationship with dogmatics, but he thought that ethics should be done in the indicative mood, not the imperative, like First Corinthians thirteen, sort of. This is what love looks like, mm-hmm. and I think that also the 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 most powerful thing that I think will that can be offered is helping to to help people. I mean, most people, right, I think, you know, I'm with Hume on this, that we are slaves to the passions. We are not rational animals. We are rationalizing animals. And so, we, we don't, that's his reason sort of lags right. behind. Right. All sort of contemporary research shows that Hume was right about this. Like, But you, you, so I think the more we move people's imaginations and, and offer stories where grace and love change the horizon, that there's more of a chance that people get dislodged from deleterious kind of tribalisms and, 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 and become more open to more hopeful possibilities. So I, I generally don't think like the most, the people that are, that speak in the strongest imperative mood generally lack uh, imagination and also lack generally, not all the time, but generally lack a sort of an alternative to the tribes. They often echo tribes. So, I mean, I think that part of the, the call or the opportunity is, is to offer people, yeah, a more excellent imaginative way. Uh, but I think that that often, again, looks more creative and less controlling, you know, when I think it's successful and, you know, I look at something like, for instance, Invisibilia, which I find incredibly moving. Um, that's an incredibly moving podcast. And, and largely it's stories, you know, it's, it's, it's stories crafted incredibly well that, that move, the listener, I mean, it take you on journeys like every episode. And I think that is is something that would offer more hope in the midst of the kind of challenging realities you're talking about. Well, let me let me um, uh, the story reminds me, but a story that has that's properly exegeted. For instance, it was interesting. I am uh, I'm I'm teaching a preaching class to one Buddhist priests in training, ministers in training, and uh, uh, the second time I've taught it, and I learned so much by doing it. And they're they're lovely people. They're and, uh, I, you know, they, 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 the one institute hires Christians to teach preaching. So, it's, you know, so there's a sense where, you know, uh, part of what we do is I say, all right, this is how I approach text. You have to learn, you know, you, you, know, you learn your own hermeneutic, but understand this is you're giving, you're going to be giving talks in a North American context. So, anyway. So, if you want a mega temple, 
Just play Joel Osteen. Just do this. <laughs> it's not detached. Off, 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 uh, off recording. I'll tell you what. One of them listened to one of his my one of my last students listened to him and what they said. But anyway, so uh, I put up the story of the Good Samaritan, Luke, uh, Luke chapter ten, and I put often the Good Samaritan is separated from the Mary Martha text which immediately follows it. But uh, I think Luke organizes it on purpose. I think the Good Samaritan is, you know, about what it means to love neighbor, as the lawyer asks, and then Mary Martha is an illustration of what it means to love God. At any rate, uh, we were talking about how do you execute a passage, and I had taken a text earlier from, from their scripture and said, okay, help me understand this and illustrate that. And so I talked about the Good Samaritan, and I said, you have to define Samaritan. You can't assume. I don't assume you all know what that means. And one of the students afterwards said, I've always heard of the Good Samaritan, which I thought that means you do good to people who are, you know, in need, which, you know, we believe as well. So now that you've said about what a Samaritan really was, he says, this is a much more radical yeah. story. And I think, you know, there's a sense where, I mean, Jesus was able to make radical pronouncements in people's lives. I think sometimes by... Not only what he said, but what he didn't say. And I think that sometimes can be both the word of hope and word of judgment, how they dance together in that. And I, I just think it's, it's interesting. interesting the context of that parable, too. What did the scribe say? You know, he so, he just, so he could justify, justify himself. Him, so justify himself, yeah. And it's interesting because, like, I, I wonder if Jesus is, well, I mean, you could probably read it as both. Is Jesus Samaritan or man in the ditch? Like, like it, so on one level, it's almost like you could be, you're in the ditch. And unless you let me neighbor you, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're, you're going to be, or it could be, I look like the one in the ditch, right? Because I, I, I do things like, Luke, why is it, why do you eat with people? Why are you, you do things that make you look unclean, like the one, right. that, you know, and so it's very interesting that, that it's, yeah, I love that story because it's, yeah. you see Jesus, it's like a prism and you can see Jesus in so many places in the story. Right. And he also has reminded us that, as Augustine says in the sermon on that, your neighbor is the person who you have the power to help. And I think Christians who don't use their power properly are uh, failing at the most foundational part of what it means to be a Christian. Well, I would guess that that's a pretty big part of the Christian populace, yeah, so, especially in America. So that's why there you go. Very, confess your sins exactly. and, let's get, and let's try to be a little more Saturday, engaged. Saturday uh, afternoon special. Uh, you know what? <laughs> if, you know, I, one, thing, I, one thing I will get fish. I don't think of Christians acting like Christians would have stopped Hitler. But Christians acting like Christians, more of them probably could have slowed them down. A yeah, bit. yeah, yeah, I, so. I, yeah, absolutely. All right, take care, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us for today's episode of New Persuasive Words. Hope you enjoyed Scott and Bill's conversation, and will join us back here next time. Until then, thanks for listening, and God bless. <laughs>